Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. Thanks for joining me here. This is the partner surrogate episode number two. Our guest, Brandon, no last name. He's very mysterious. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But Brandon is here from ampersandintimacy.com, and you can find him on Instagram at surrogate therapy. Hello, Brandon. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We met properly in a panel about sex work. We did a couple weeks recently. ago, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And then I think we followed each other also on Instagram. Yeah, for I've been following you for maybe four or five years now. And oh wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've seen it's some stuff. I have seen some stuff. <laughs> some I have stuff seen some stuff. Gone down. Uh, and I bet you've experienced plenty of your own stuff. So we're going to talk about it here. Indeed. This is the second episode where we're talking partner surrogacy. And it's really key to point out that my previous guest, uh, Brian Gibney, is also a white cisgender male. So we're going to talk about some similarities, maybe some differences, because you're two different people. And you have listened to the previous episode with Brian Gibney. So I'm interested to see uh, what else we can dive into. Yeah. So, yeah. So whereabouts are you located? Are you okay with saying? Yeah, I am. Th- I'm in the Northeast region and currently I'm on Lenape land in New York City, but I bounce around typically to uh, Massachusetts and Wampanoag uh, lands in Boston area and mm-hmm. uh, Rhode Island and some parts of Connecticut too. Okay. So you're East Coaster American. Yeah. What are some identities that you strongly relate to? Uh, settler colonial uh, of European descent on the North American continent and uh, a partner, a sibling, um, a helping professional, uh, a kingster, an educator. Um, you said you have ADHD. <laughs> I do have ADHD. <laughs> yeah, I do have ADHD. Um, Same. I, I'm an avid gamer. Um, that has historically been one of the ways that my brain has actually been able to really organize pretty smoothly. And I, there are a few things in my life where I experience intense levels of focus and, mm. um, and uh, that good kind of sort of eustress, I think it's called, where I can feel a certain level of activation, but it's focused mm. and uh, gaming of all sorts um, helps me with that. Hmm. What about, so I'm, I'm wondering if also kink or sex or teaching might also put you in that kind of intense totally. realm of focus. <laughs> yes. Totally. Yes. Basically, I think what I'm pointing to is play. Yes. Um, when, I'm, when I'm doing play, it is a time when I can feel activated and, uh, without fear and where there's an element of focus and direction, um, even in uh, goalless play, mm. which I really love. Mm, goalless play that's fun Mm -hmm. so let's not assume that all the folks here listening today have heard the other episodes so what does a surrogate partner do so a surrogate partner works in a triadic model with a client and a clinician to as a stand-in partner to provide experiential uh, activities and a relationship um, container so that the client can navigate, explore, and hopefully overcome some pretty profound obstacles to emotional and physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
What services do you offer specifically? Um, so you're talking with people, you're guiding them with touch. Mm-hmm. Touch is a big part of it. It's a really slow process. I want to really emphasize that, that SPT is, is a relational process more than anything. And that is really the, the therapy is in the activities and certainly touch is a crucial element of that. But more than that, it's the relationship that uh, makes the way for all of that. So we are getting to know each other. We're developing rapport. We are learning uh, a common language of our own relationship language. We're getting curious about each other. Mm-hmm. So the services include everything from the time it takes of just being with somebody, like really being with somebody in shared space, um, paying attention to our nervous systems along the way, uh, establishing a culture of consent. And I say a culture of consent is in a, a relational culture of consent. We do activities to teach consent skills, but consent isn't just a skill. It's also an atmosphere. And so a lot of what we do is really build and settle into and sometimes challenge and revise the culture of consent in our relationships so that we can get as authentic and in touch with ourselves and each other as possible. Mm. And I believe there's typically a limitation, like a number of sessions you can have with clients. There aren't any hard limits. It's okay. not, not that I've, I've encountered. Typically, though, it's, you know, what's really interesting about this work is sometimes people come in with certain expectations or goals that they might have, which is fine. Everybody comes, people come to therapy with goals too. Um, it's worth noting that I, I worked as a clinician for about a decade before transitioning to becoming a, thir- a surrogate partner. And so my mm. background is actually in clinical social work. Mm. And That's very important to yeah. note. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I made a pivot to, to focus on doing this work. And people come in with all sorts of goals and ideas about themselves and their problems. And, um, and that's really useful for helping give us direction and uh, learning where to start and where to meet that client. Mm-hmm. With that, though, we don't always have a predictable timeline. Sometimes we can guess, right? Usually, maybe there's a recommendation of, you know, let's, let's give this uh, you know, three weeks, right? And take it one, one meeting at a time and really see how it goes. Because sometimes, I think Brian actually mentioned this in this episode, sometimes a person has simply never had an experience where they've said no to a person and had it honored. Mm. And sometimes that that alone is the key, and especially in in circumstances where if I'm if I'm with someone who socialized female, a cis woman, or a femme person, and that is the step we get to, where where we are uh, exercising our consent mm-hmm. and the permission and and arrival of a person in a room when they're able to say no to something and it's honored without argument. That alone can sometimes turn the tables, and sometimes people don't really need any more. A lot more after that, they've stepped into a certain kind of power they didn't even know they had Mm. or they've never had the chance to exercise. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'm thinking about, oh, you said something earlier and I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember. You said that consent is something, but it's also, it's a culture, right? I. Yeah, it's, it's skill and it's atmosphere. Right. Yeah. I noticed that with. Not so much my online clients, but more the the in person and let's just say let's just say my lap dance clients where I notice sometimes a deal of like a great deal of surprise from some people and all kinds of people, men, women, gender queer, gender fucking all kinds of people. But when I ask them, Do you have anywhere on your body you don't like touched? 
like before mm. we start. Um, this is very standard for me where I ask, do you have any injured areas, new tattoos, sunburn, anywhere I should avoid? Because a lot of people, number one, don't think about that stuff or they're kind of afraid to bring it up because they don't want to seem difficult or weak. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I, I experienced that. I, I notice like a guilt that comes from more often women where they're like, oh, I didn't want to be difficult where I didn't want to mention like don't touch my hair or my earrings or something. Whereas, you know, that's perfectly reasonable to not want your hair or your earrings touched. Uh, but from men, a lot of times they're like, oh, no one's ever asked me that before in a lap dance or otherwise. And so that's how I feel like I introduce them to the concept of like, I care about all of these things. We'll both have a better time yeah. if we're both comfortable. Yes. Right. Oh. Right. Actually, and that's a good one for folks who are listening. If you're a sex worker and you're dealing with a client who does not seem to care about your comfort or your boundaries, something that I will use if I'm still trying to rein them in and work with them besides, you know, walking away or running away from the situation, I will sometimes say, this will be more fun for both of us if we're both comfortable. Which hints that I'm not comfortable right now because of what you're doing. Please stop. And if I have to escalate it to the next, you know, that's that. But anyway, a lot of people get really caught up also either in their arousal and they forget that like maybe you're, you're pinching my nipples a little hard. Or they're so in their space of discomfort or they, they don't want to make you uncomfortable that they can't relax enough at all. So I, I, I noticed that. I don't know if you relate to any of that with your clients. Absolutely. And, and in fact, the way you said that is very similar to, to something I might say as well, mm -hmm. right? In terms of, uh, I, I feel um, we'll both enjoy this more, right? If I'm more comfortable. Something else that I'll say too is that it's really important to me to feel like I can stay present with you. Mm -hmm. Like I really want to be with you in what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, when you said such and such, or when this thing happens, it makes it hard for me to stay present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I want to be present. Mm -hmm. right? I want to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. with you. So because you listened to the previous surrogate partner episode, is there anything that stood out to you that you do differently than Brian Gibney? I'm not sure that I heard anything that I do <clears throat> terribly differently. I think there's a, we probably have differences just in our styles, which is the natural, like the artistry of SPT, which is just like therapists have different styles, even if they have the same exact training, right? Because in SPT, even more so than I would say in, in, as a therapist, I'm infusing more of my personality and myself. I'm actually being more vulnerable and sharing with the client about who I am as a person. So it's going to be inherently different even if we're doing all the same activities that maybe another surrogate might do, because I'm really bringing myself to the process. Mm -hmm. I've read before, and I've discussed this with a couple other therapists or counselors that were on the show, that apparently liking your provider is one of the greatest predictors to having a successful outcome in, in your sessions. Like if you don't trust and like your therapist, you're not going to have as good of an outcome. So some studies say, what do you think about that? I think that's absolutely true. And what, what I would clarify on that is liking your provider mm -hmm. is not necessarily how well you get along or how nice you think they are. Because liking somebody, like really liking them, what, what I think we're getting at is one, how connected do you feel like you're able to be and how connected do you think they are to you in terms of are they connecting to your experience? Do you feel heard? Do you feel seen? But also, where's the trust 
And trust is less about how nice someone is, and it's more about how real they are. Do you trust somebody to tell you what they really think? Do you trust somebody to challenge you in the ways that you deeply yearn for, but don't let yourself be exposed, or you can't rely on people in your life to do so because you have different roles to play? Mm. Mm. I do. So, I do enjoy my therapist because I know she'll tell me when she thinks I'm wrong. <laughs> seriously, same, right? And that's that's something as a therapist who's in therapy, right? One of the first things when I was shopping for therapists, one of the first things I said was. I need to know that you're listening to what I'm saying so you can track it and show me receipts when it's time to call me on my bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Let's see. Oh, well, I got, I was deeply reflecting, so I lost where I was. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, okay. So your clients, are you hetero? Uh, I, I am not, but in terms of the client base that I typically serve, it's so weird for me to even say like what my orientation is because so much of it is the way I experience it in the world. Mm-hmm. There are, there are tendencies, but also attraction comes up in really interesting places that don't always have to do with um, someone's supposed anatomy or the gender at play. But in terms of my work, typically I work with cis women, um, AFAB non-binary folks um, and trans women. Okay. 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 So you typically don't have any mask of center clients. Typically not, just because what I notice in, in terms of whatever gradation of my sexuality is, like whatever, uh, I'm not usually attracted to uh, to a strong uh, to a lot of like strong mask presentation. Typically, mm-hmm. I just don't I don't typically grab, to gravitate towards it, and so I don't want my I don't want my orientation to be a barrier to being able to connect with somebody. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Like you can. Probably... There needs to be something on the table. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. You feel like you're more experienced in maybe a realm that you can like serve that pop those populations better. Yes. And tap into a, and tap into a, a more ready uh, sense of my own, uh, what I, what I know that I'm attracted to most of the time. Mm, Okay. Okay. I feel not identical, but what I'm thinking of now is how I have no preference for sexual partners but I know that I'm more adept at cis men. <laughs> um, For sure. Yeah, I just, yeah. I have more experience and the, ra- the world raised me to be this way. So um, yeah. yeah, okay, that's funny. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, not that there's not some really, I work with some, uh, some great lesbian hustler strippers where their clients would never know, but. Would never know. Different, yeah. different work, different environment. Uh, okay, so I... I actually, I wasn't sure, but I made an assumption and I think it worked out okay for how we're going to transition to the next part. I asked my followers on Instagram, I said, women, because I just guessed that your clients were probably women. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you pay for a man sex surrogate slash escort? So the language here I want to specify, we don't use the term sex surrogate and you're not an escort, but if I put partner surrogate, I feel like a lot of people would not know what that is. I understand. Okay. So for clarity to the people that I was asking, um, so women, would you pay for a man surrogate slash escort? 47% of my followers who saw this said yes. 53% said no. So pretty close, 50-50. And the Mm follow-up question was, if yes, why do you think that is? So I'll read you react. Okay. Great. Okay. Someone says, because I would want a professional to make me feel how I'd want to feel. 
Someone says, I'm bisexual. If I'm paying for sex, I want to support a woman at the same time. That's funny. So this person says they would see a woman provider. Okay. Yep. Okay. Someone says, I would like to have my needs met without feeling bad for asking to also orgasm. Mm. Someone says, I think being able to experience touch safely and enjoyably would have helped after sexual assault trauma. Yeah. Someone says, I am sexually curious and feel like that situation could be very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Someone says, I'm sure they'd have some tricks I could learn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh Uh-huh. So, and again, your, your work is differently structured than escorts, but the concept Mm -hmm. was still pretty much understood. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... I guess follow-up question that I could ask for next time, I would ask, why not? I'm, I'm always curious. Yeah. You know, because uh, I understand the reasons yeah. why people don't want to interact with me. Like when people are like, I don't like strip clubs. I'm like, yeah, no, I get it. They're, they're loud. There's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might not feel like you can afford the experience. Uh, flashing lights. Right. Like, I get it. I'm not offended. Um, fun stuff. Okay. I think, I think the question that comes to my mind uh, and not that, not that SBT is necessarily going to be right for everybody. And, and, uh, uh, I mean, I really liked the reason that you cited too, around like, I would want to, that person wants to pay a woman for that experience, mm-hmm. right. Just in terms of like sort of an economic, um, solidarity piece too, uh, is I imagine for the nose, I wonder what percentage of the nose, what are they imagining that they're paying for? Mm. That's the question I have, because I understandably, if I'm, if I imagine, if somebody's like, "Hey, would you would you pay for for sex with uh, with with a cis hat dude?" Um, <laughs> this, this is probably going to be a, a pretty narrow range of things I'm imagining, and I got better things to do with my money. <laughs> you know? I, yeah, yeah, because there's definitely people who are thinking back on the experiences they've had with with dudes, yes. and they're like, "No, I wouldn't pay money to replicate that." <laughs> exactly. Right. But exactly. when, when yeah. in reality, it's, 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 it's actually the undoing. Mm-hmm. The point of SBT is the undoing of those scripts, mm-hmm. the undoing of the, of, of uh, the compulsory trajectory of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Undoing of that. Mm-hmm. I like doing that similarly also when I'm, when I'm giving service, like whether it's like a jack off instructional video, like a JOI or a lap dance or like, you know, a digital session where I'm strapping someone or whatever, telling them to suck mommy's dick. Like I, <laughs> I get a lot of feedback from people where they're like, wow, that was so warm, affirming, safe, pleasant. Um, even if it was like really kinky and I'm like, yes, like I want you to feel safe while you're doing the so-called naughty things or whatever so that, you know, the naughty things aren't bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So everybody go to ampersandintimacy.com and also look Brandon up if you're still on Instagram, that dumpster fire uh, sinking ship on which I am still (laughs) riding. You can find Brandon at surrogate therapy and you can find me on lstanger.com, Twitter at lstanger. Hey, do you want to open your relationship? Whether you're totally ready or 100% terrified, I've got something for you. 
Best-selling author, New York Times, and NPR contributor Dr. Jolie Hamilton is the expert who helps people open their relationships up without burning things down. Now you can leverage her five pillars of open relationships to open yours the smart way. Dr. Jolie shares the five pillars during her upcoming online salon. Grab your spot at openeasier.com. It's free when you register now at openeasier.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. I mentioned earlier that I'm still on the Dumpster Fire Instagram. You can find me at Stripper Writer. I got a notification yesterday that says my content is no longer being shown to non-followers. So it's getting harder to find me, but reach out. Yeah, I know, right? Collective ugh. We're speaking with Brandon about more positive things like surrogate partner therapy. This is episode two. Yes, indeed. So we're going to do some listener questions. Okay, so asking Brandon, no last name, at Surrogate Therapy and Ampersand Intimacy. Okay, so listener question one, is there any hygiene requests you have for clients? Yeah. Do you have paperwork that says, like, please shower? I do. Have, I do. In my paperwork, it does mention that, just around um, general hygiene. But I also talk about it because I want to normalize talking about it. It is... The point being is that hygiene, like bodies are inherently not shameful. They're not inherently dirty. And it's also something that we need to attend to when it when we're going to be close and intimate with other people. And like I said before, I frame it in the sense of, like, I'll say something like, you know, I noticed that I am really sensitive to strong smells, whether that's body odors or fragrances. And so one thing that really helps me stay really present and not be distracted is feeling uh like we're both clean and warm and uh and ready to go right it helps me feel confident it helps me really focus on the, uh the subtleties of being close to you mm. and so overpowering sensations just like just like loud noises are going to draw me out and so typically that means that you know showering before we visit is going to be the norm um taking care of our oral hygiene is just going to really help us feel more comfortable the closer we get mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I always ask again, sorry, I relate everything to the strip club because I'm there three nights a week for 14 years. And usually if we're recording this on a on a Sunday or a Monday, which we are, that means I was at the club the previous night. So it really like I always and I feel like I might lose money because of this, because sometimes you have the client, at least in the club environment where they're like, "Okay, yes, let's do a dance. And I'm like, oh, would you wash your hands first? Because there's gonna be mutual touching, you know, and uh some people are like, oh, okay. Like some are very like, yes, of course, sure. Cause they kind of get the hint that like you're, you're going to be touching me. And then other people kind of seem annoyed and seem to think it's like unnecessary. And then they're just going to have like a less good experience with me because I'm not going to want them to be so close to my butthole or my face with their hands. Um, yeah, it's like at least wash your hands. And then I always do the, the kindness at this point of uh, not baby wiping, but hygiene wiping my butt crack before I go on stage and put it near someone's face, uh-huh. you know, no shame, but like <laughs> wipe your butt. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just, to me, it's, it's about, it's also about cultivating a sense of, bo- of bodily awareness and, um, and, uh, consideration is the wrong is maybe not the best word, but just having a, having a sense of, 
attending to oneself for the sake of feeling your own confidence and also to encourage uh, intimacy, right? To encourage play. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, this is where the, this is where the, I'm also a certified sex educator. And this is where the education piece comes out too. Like learning about our bodies and the, our, the ecosystems that comprise it is really important. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, a lot of us got little to no education or it was only fear-based and only disease focused or pregnancy focused. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, we didn't really get to get in touch with the all these different ecosystems that comprise our body and how to maintain them for intimacy Mm -hmm. i had a client that was confused as to why i would let him touch my breasts but not my vulva and i was like oh this poor man doesn't understand that i i won't get like bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection on my boobies but if you put those dirty bar hands in my snatch, it's it's like 100 percent gonna happen (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like just yeah we need better sex education uh, okay, so you do have hygiene requests. That makes sense. And this is a good uh, shout out to anybody else who does work with people's bodies. It's not inappropriate to ask. Um, I had a line in my contract when I was doing cuddling uh, similarly, like, you know, please be showered within like an hour or so of my arrival. Deodorant is welcome. No cologne needed. Let me know if you have any sensory issues. So, okay, listener question two. I prefer to schedule sex with my wife rather than have it spontaneously. Is there anything wrong with that? I thought this was no. a curious question. Yeah, no. No, not at all. It, so- it sounds like th- you have found the system that works uh, with regard to your responsive desire. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, or, or how that person experiences desire. I'm wondering why they would think there's something wrong with that. Well, you don't have to look very far because of the the mythology around sexuality that pervades our culture is that it's always supposed to be spontaneous. Oh, like men are supposed to be able to like throw down for sex at any time. At any time. We're supposed to be raring to go at any time. We're all supposed to be rock hard the entire time and have uh, erupting orgasms every time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's yeah. what happens when you eat fast food all the time, like Americans do. <laughs> I ate McDonald's last night. I don't usually do that, and I had a tummy ache this morning. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I prefer to schedule sex with my wife. That's really cute. I hope this person isn't going through any kind of distress or shame about it, and I hope the wife is comfortable with this because I actually really like scheduling sex. It's kind of like that's the foreplay. I get to look forward to the fun sex. Yeah, and I, I think in in our world too, what I'm hearing in this, right? And again, we don't know the 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 wife's experience, but what I'm hearing in this is that it's a priority in their relationship that they have structured it in mm. to make sure it happens. Mm. Right? There's a strength in there that they that they haven't. They're not just waiting for it to be spontaneous, mm-hmm. and then when it, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And languishing, which a lot of people do, and sort of waiting for it to just ignite, like like maybe it did at the beginning of the relationship. Mm-hmm. They've prioritized it, they structured it. Mm-hmm. That's a skill. Mm-hmm. That's a tool. I like that. Yeah, priority. Yeah. It's like family dinner, game night. Like this brings us it's, together, and we enjoy it. Yeah, that's a bonding experience. Ah, yeah, I like that. Okay, listener question three. About how much do sessions cost for clients? Is insurance an option or involved? Is there sliding scale? So um, 
every surrogate charges, um, we get to set our own fees. And that's going to be dependent on a number of things. One, where we live, because cost of living is different mm-hmm. everywhere in the nation. Um, two, the other kinds of skills and experience the surrogate brings to the profession. Like previously, I worked as a clinician. Mm-hmm. I'm also a sex educator. I, I bring a lot to this role. Even though I'm not in those roles, I bring a lot to bear in this role. And so I consider that when I set my fee. Um, and also how long somebody's been doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in, a, I'm in my what's called the interim practice phase because I finished the program uh, about two years ago, year and a half ago. And so I'm in, I'm practicing, but I'm in this phase where I'm accruing my experience prior to certification. Right. It's almost like when almost like new clinicians, how they have to have um, so many hours they work before they get fully licensed mm-hmm. in the work. It's kind of similar to that. Mm-hmm. And I have a mentor and everything. It's good. It's, it's like a, a great way to uh, cultivate the professionalism, you know, and experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be different for everyone. Um, as far as insurance, uh, surrogate partner therapy is not covered by insurance and it probably never will be. Damn. Um, Why do you think yeah. that is? Because what it would take to include it would involve uh, regulatory bodies getting into people's sex lives in ways that I don't think are going to be helpful and that I think are going to potentially be invasive. Can we explore that further? Because I don't, I think I understand, but can you explain more of your fears around that or like what that might look like? Uh, Regulatory bodies. Well, let's put it in a similar sense of of, uh, when people say, well, why not legalize sex work instead of decriminalizing it? Oh. Right? Right. The the hands hands of bodies getting involved and then who's making the gatekeeping decisions around who can practice and what constitutes it and what insurance companies are willing to pay. So now they're going to set your rates. Oh, right. Now they're going to determine what your work is worth. Oh, okay. Okay. So there's more regulation, which wouldn't necessarily benefit the providers or the clients, okay, if you're just regulating the heck out of it or being able to state who can provide versus who can't. So like so like for prostitution stuff, when people say legalize it, and that means everybody who pays taxes and has an address and an ID and can pay for a, you know, a, a fee or a permit or whatever, they, they, they can be legal sex workers. And it's like, well, the people that can't meet those requirements would, would be now considered criminals or further criminalized. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And who's, who's ultimately going to benefit from, from that process, right? I feel like legalizing stuff, not that, not that there haven't been important things that have been legalized, but legalizing things, um, how much of that is going to be about concentrating power and wealth into um, hands above the workers. Right. Oh yeah. It's like cannabis was legalized, not so we could let a bunch of people out of jail and prison and expunge their records, but because some cannabis farmers and production manufacturers can make a ton of money. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. It was lucrative for the state, but not necessarily human rights issue. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not saying all regulation should, you know, across the board is bad, but I'm absolutely skeptical of it. And I think that we should be, especially when it comes to the autonomy of our bodies. And when we're talking about sexuality, mm-hmm. our, our country doesn't have a great track record. Gotcha. Like that. I wonder if decriminalizing sex work would make it easier for clinicians and therapists to be able to refer to people like you or people like me. 
A hundred percent. And this is why I am in solidarity with sex workers. And I think SPT as a whole should be in solidarity. And most of my colleagues are really expressly so. But we always say that we are in solidarity with sex workers. SPT would not exist without sex workers. When, when SPT was formed in the, in the 60s and the clinical trials of Masters and Johnson, and they realized that they needed surrogates to come in to help with their research with unpartnered men who were experiencing sex, sexual dysfunction, who do you think taught them how to train surrogates? Escorts. Sex workers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You you won't hear about that though in a lot of the in a lot of the history about it. You won't hear about that part. I love that you you did bring that up on the panel. You brought that up to the moderator and you pointed out that it's erasure as to why that isn't usually mentioned. Mm-hmm. I love that. True solidarity, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So listener question four. Someone asks, can you think of any former clients that you had that were easier to work with than others? What made them different? That's a good question. And it's a hard one to answer because I feel like every time I I work a case, it's hard to say what was easier. I feel like every case has its own challenges. But I think that um, the cases that I find are hardest for me to deal with have to do with um, when folks, when folks inevitably hit that point in the work where, especially after we've maybe experienced a little bit of closeness or some intimacy or a little bit of a breakthrough where there's that pivot and they say, well, you don't really care about me. (gasps) You're, you're, uh, you're only here because you're getting paid. Right. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes people quit then. Sometimes people need to pause them because that coming up has put them in touch with what what is called reunion grief, right? They've gotten a taste of something they've either never gotten mm. or was take they lost a long time ago, and and the grief that accompanies the joy of getting it is overwhelming, mm. and there can be a, a a repulsion that happens and an almost disbelief that it could have been real. And why would I, as a especially in in the role of being a worker in this? How could this be real? Right? And they don't want to feel surprised or betrayed by believing in it. And it makes sense. Yeah. Gosh. But, uh, go ahead. That, but that's a, that's a hard moment because, because sometimes p- two people do need to step away. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is also why we have the therapist. This is why we're going to try it. Because that's really when the therapist needs to step in and mm-hmm. hold that mm-hmm. with the client. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that is not a, an exception to the work. It is a part of the work. And that's why we need that person to be there along the way. I have experienced that definitely. I was walking to the club last night and I spotted down the block a previous uh, strip club client who I really liked, like enjoyed as a person, looked forward to seeing he was like low effort um, in terms of like not making like inappropriate jokes or he he was just really, really, I liked him. Um, But he went through it multiple times in the last six months where I could tell right off the bat that he was having a good time, but that this was going to be unsustainable. So he went through it multiple times in the last months where he would break up with me with the reason that he should be trying to focus on dating and real attachment. And I always was like, okay, I wish you well, like good luck. But then I'd see him again a couple of weeks later because he wanted to feel good. And then he finally told me the last go, he said that lap dances were actually making him feel worse at the end and not better. 
And I could sense this kind of resentment directed at me. And it really hurt my feelings in a way that I had to like acknowledge, like, this is a client. Don't take it personally. Like he's going through his own shit. But it kind of hurt my feelings because it almost to me feels like I did not want to be held captive to participate in your resentment. I'm just here working and you sought me out and I did my best. And then your issues came up and I'm going to try to just patiently acknowledge them and give you space and walk away. But I'm not going to lie. It kind of pissed me off when I heard from a coworker. They're like, oh, L, your customer, he's coming in and buying dances for me now. And I was like, oh, I'm like, well, he broke up with me because it wasn't sustainable. But ultimately, he's still trying to get those needs met. So he pivoted to a different provider. And I hope he gets what he needs. But I'm annoyed because I'm like, man, I could have had that money. But you got mad at me for no reason. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 I, I, and so it's it's kind of it's it sounds like a very similar thing that I might run into. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe on a, maybe on a different scale, but it's a similar thing of of. Um, so what's hardest for me is sometimes that can really take the form of somebody getting um, uh, sometimes almost mean yeah. in an effort to push me away. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. Even when I, even when I know that this is what's happening or part of what's happening and very little of it has to do with me, it still hurts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're just here for the money and it's like, right. Well, yeah, but aren't we all like, I mean, thanks for cleaning my teeth dentist. You're just here for the money. Right. <laughs> You know, right? Thanks, tax man at H and R Block. Guess I'll write you a big check now, you asshole. Yeah, yeah. We Uh, all have to sell at labor. Yeah, we do. Okay, okay. So that was actually a question that I had. If you had experienced that same thing with people getting attached, and then other things. Absolutely. I mean, I experienced it as a therapist, but but even more intensely so. I think in the role of a surrogate, right? Because it's that much more intimate. Once touch is involved, that's a different that's a different ball game. Yeah, for a lot of people, like you said, that have never had the safe touch, or maybe they're mourning yeah. the loss yeah. of it. Yeah, I realized that I didn't want to dodge the other two parts of the financial question. Mm, um, oh, one of sure. them being, is there is there sliding scale? Yes, there's sliding scale. I think every every one of my colleagues, including myself, um, employs sliding scale as a part of like economic justice. Right? And having a mind for that. Very nice of you. So, I mean, it, we have to do it sustainably, and it depends on um, the balance in our caseloads or other or other streams of revenue that we have to sustain that um, as an action. But we all practice it to some degree or another, mm-hmm. for sure. And I think most people, and to, just to give a range, most surrogates, I feel like, fall between the range of uh, 150 and 300 an hour. Okay. Okay. So about the cost of a tattoo hourly rate at this point mm-hmm. yeah okay all right so we're gonna take a break everybody if you have not already look up ampersandintimacy.com and find me on lstanger.com you can see what i am doing behind the scenes i have a one dollar subscriber page patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows You know, I've never met anyone who likes sleeping in the wet spot. I'm sure they're out there somewhere, but for everybody else, there's getthelayer.com. Personally, it's great for me because I make a mess with either period stains or squirting 
or other activities. It's great for travel, great for sex workers and webcammers, definitely. Great for folks with disability or when you just don't want to leave a wet spot. Use code L for 10% off and a portion of proceeds is donated to the Trevor Project and to Distributing Dignity. That's getthelair.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex Podcast. Thank you for your lovely reviews or comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Appreciate you. Listen to us on Podorama. And let's speak a little bit more with Brandon at Surrogate Therapy on Instagram. So I mentioned earlier in the episode that my two lovely partner surrogate guests that I've had on this show, you're both white, uh, cisgender men who I guess could pass through the world as hetero. You clarified earlier that you're not entirely heterosexual. But uh, some similarities between the two of you. And I was a little dismayed when I realized this. I'm like, oh, no, my guests aren't different enough. But we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did you you said there was something interesting to that? Yeah, we should talk about that because um, especially since uh, Brian and I have been friends for a couple of years and we actually do a lot of trainings together. Uh, especially for therapists, so we'll we'll do presentations on SPT at clinical practices, and um, uh, one of the things we have to get out in front of right away is how, first of all, how white the profession is. It's super white. Sex therapy. Yeah, surrogate partner therapy in particular. Um, it it bears the legacies of of being designed. I mean, think about think about why it was designed. It was designed to research and treat cisgender heterosexual white men sexual dysfunction that was the Mm. point so think about the origin of it and while the practice over the last you know 50 plus years has evolved immensely just the practice as a whole and some of its representation in terms of used to be only cisgender white women um Mm -hmm. and then more men joined queer men joined queer Queer women and femmes joined. Now, now there are trans practitioners. The gender diversity and sexual orientation diversity has has become a lot richer in recent years mm-hmm. since the resurgence mm-hmm. in the early aughts. Um, but it is overwhelmingly still white, and there are mm-hmm. um, there are practitioners of um, Asian descent and um, Latinx practitioners, and a, a, a few have indigenous identities. Um, to my knowledge, and I've checked multiple times. There is very little in the realm of SPT, what we're calling SPT, uh, of black presence, like the presence of actually black practitioners, right? And so it mm-hmm. makes me wonder also, who are the populations being served? Is it largely mm-hmm. white? Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to name that as a reality. And it's something that we, that the purpose of us talking about it and going on podcasts and doing education is to get the word out about SPT because it, it necessarily needs to change and evolve and grow and expand. I communicated a little bit about, um, I asked Danielle Simpson Baker, she's a therapist and has worked as an escort. She's in Florida. She's a black woman. And uh, number one, I was like, wow, working as a black woman therapist and a previous escort in Florida where sex work is even more criminalized than where I am in Oregon. Uh, You know, what's, what's that? What's that like? And she says she hears from people that her clients are grateful to see the representation that they can have a black lady therapist. 
Uh, so, and again, I was really grateful that she was able to say like, yeah, I've done sex work. I've done some privileged sex work where I got to pick my clients, but I have that experience too. And, uh, so yeah, there really is something to that because a lot more people I think are going to seek out, you know, the people in their populations or their communities that look like them and they don't have to explain microaggressions to or other cultural differences. So I'm glad that I'm glad, you know, these things. And you said you've looked quite a bit and there's very few black SBT workers. Yeah. I mean, there's not that many, there's not that many surrogates to begin with. I think there are maybe 300 in the world who are active right now. In the world. As as far as I know. Um, But there's something I want to say too about this, which is that uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't practitioners uh, of color or of diverse ethnicities, um, cultural backgrounds who are doing work like this, but it's not called this. Mm. Who are doing things that come from traditions that even long predate SPT. And I want to, I want to name and validate that, that there are other cultural practices that are akin to this or adjacent to this that exists in other cultural groups. So maybe it doesn't mean that uh, other cultural groups aren't being served at all by something like this, but they have their own, right? Maybe they have something that is linked to a retained or reclaimed cultural practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, SPT, which comes out of the white clinical world, isn't really going to be the thing. At least mm-hmm. it hasn't it hasn't shown up for them yet. And I hope it changes. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. what I, but I'm also not going to pretend that it isn't what it is right now. Mm-hmm. That's a good acknowledgement. So how, as a kinkster, how does kink and surrogate partner therapy relate for you? There's a lot of transferable skills. You know, when it comes to when it comes to uh, navigating consent, negotiating things, the the real the comfort that and straightforwardness and um, I think clarity that comes with kink negotiation, right, uh, really lends itself very well. Um, the not taking for granted even small gestures of touch or proximity that come with the kink world with the addition of, of, of new activities or transitioning transitions, right, from one activity to the next that often happens in kink worlds. It's usually a check-in, and that plays itself out really well in SPT. Um, being mindful of not doing things that are, like, up-negotiating, you know? What does that look like? Up-negotiating is, a, is something that happens when you've already set the agreements and the balance of the play. And mm. in, in the middle of play, usually when people are in altered states of arousal, Right or subspace or top floor or whatever it is, um, the the implementation of a new activity that wasn't previously negotiated, even if it feels really good and desire is high, that can result in a trust rupture or an abrasion mm-hmm. because it was not something that was previously negotiated. Okay, okay, that yes, okay, I understand. I do not like surprises as a provider or as a client. Actually, <laughs> I really don't. Okay. Okay. That's one of those things for me when I'm, I'm the one who's applying the touch for the most part, or I'm guiding like where I'm receiving the touch. It, it's never, it's never something I want to hear when the client says, I just want to make you feel good because that's actually not on the table for me. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh God, no, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, or like when I've said to someone like, you're welcome to return touch to me. You're, you know, you're welcome and encouraged to return touch to me, but please not my face or mm-hmm. my pussy and butthole. And then they'll start like creeping their fingers and it's like, oh God, now I can't trust you for the rest of this because 
I didn't have that many rules, but you're already pushing on them. Okay, got it. It's a re- it's a real letdown. And some people test things uh, on purpose. You know, of course, yeah. sometimes people get really excitable, and if they're if that excitement is also framed within a certain realm of entitlement, those boundaries get pushed. Uh, and also, I think some people do deliberately test those boundaries because they really want to see that you say what you mean and do what you say. Ooh, and that's a trick. I'm not saying it's the most mature way to establish trust, but I, but I think that, uh, that inevitably ends up happening to some degree or another, emotionally or physically, people want to know that you are capable of following through on the boundaries that you have set for yourself. Ooh, now my little, my little bratty, one of the, you know, there's many people in this body, but my little bratty person inside is like, oh yeah, I think I do that to my boyfriend sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's consensual. Yeah. But it's like, I think, I think it's consensual. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get dragged for this. No, no, we, I check in, we check in really great. Um, but that's funny. Okay. I didn't think about pushing boundaries as a playful way to kind of kind of request that your person like keep guiding you or keep you you know in check or whatever in a in a nice way because that can be part of the fun like sit real still don't move oh you're moving now you're going to be punished but again yeah if it's consensual it's it's okay yeah okay Okay, cool. So kink and SBT relates to those things for you. Uh, to riff off of what you were getting to, like some of the roles that we can play in kink dynamics, if they're parentified roles, if they're if they're topping roles, um, the bringing an awareness to the roles of power and uh, the power of setting agreements and boundaries and having relational consequences that happen in real time to those things. Ooh, relational can, consequences. Yes. So when there is, when somebody does test you and you follow through on that boundary or you remind them of the agreement or the consequences that you, the consequence that you stated would happen if that boundary mm-hmm. was crossed happens, uh, it can be really mm-hmm. powerful. It can be arousing. It can also be temporarily um, uh, wounding, but sometimes that's really helpful, right? That tenderness because then we can we can attend to each other. Like, yeah, that was a hard moment. It sucked to have to do that. And but now you know that I mean it when I say this. Or mm-hmm. or if I make the mistake. Because mm-hmm. remember that I'm also showing up. I'm gonna make a mistake. I'm gonna either mishear something or my interpretation of something while we're still working out our clarity and our understanding with each other. I still have the capacity to make mistakes. And what an opportunity mm-hmm. for a client to get to experience someone making a mistake with them who's gonna be there to be accountable with uh, about it with them to show mm-hmm. up to what the impact that it had and to move through it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I just don't hear things. It might be loud or somebody's face is muffled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had someone, I had someone ask me, I thought they said, can you put your boot in my face? But I think they said your butt. So I like mm-hmm. was very confused, started just like bringing my shoe up to their face. Which like some people definitely have I have I have plenty of of, uh, I have plenty of clients who are into boots and being stepped on but this this person was not one of them and it was just one of those things I think when they were like what are you doing that like I just had to laugh. You know, it's like, oh, we're laughing now because I didn't hear you at all. And it's it's good that I didn't think you said like punch me or something because, you know, I mean, I would check in before that. I actually don't. Yeah, I don't do. um, 
I'll, I'll do like a little bit of slapping, but I tell people I, I don't do blood and I, I, mm. I don't want to like break my skin. That's for sure. Yeah. And also one last thing, clients that I want to say, if I ask people, what are your boundaries or what, what should I not do? And people are like, I like everything. Just do whatever you want. No. That helps me not at all. That does not help me at all. That actually kind of makes me feel less secure because you've given me no guidance. And that's never the case. That's never the case. Like, do whatever you want to me. Okay, so what if I just boop you in the nose? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, guidance is nice. Okay. I was going to say, that's why we go really slow. That's why this work is really slow. And we, we do the activities, like, like Brian talked about that activity, um, May I Will You, which if you haven't listened to that episode, um, listeners, before, it's, he goes into great detail about how that activity plays out. That's a fantastic consent game. And then that goes in, that goes in tandem with another game called the, the, uh, the three-minute game. And this comes from Betty Martin, um, I believe, or at least that's who I heard it from. Um, but it, it's around the question of, for the next three minutes, how would you like me to touch you? Mm. And then after that, it's for the next three minutes, how would you like to touch me? Mm. And, then we, and then we both ask those questions of each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Okay, so moving on. Uh, you and I both did not see this film, but I just want to bring it up because it's kind of related. And then also every couple years, Hollywood seems to make a movie about sex work, but it seems like they don't really do enough consulting with actual sex workers because they always get stuff wrong. So again, I didn't watch Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, but I read a bunch of analysis from people who did. Um, it's interesting that they featured, so this is about a male escort and an older white woman who's looking for some adventure and some good sex. So she wants to hire a sex worker. Okay. One of the things that stood out to me that I'm really curious is it's a heartwarming tale, partly because the client is a woman and people are more interested in women clients because they tend to think of men clients as perverts or deviants. Um, So I would love to see a movie where it's a heartwarming tale and it's a male client. I know they did the sessions with Helen Hunt some years ago, too. But the analysis I read of that or the op-eds by sex workers also said that movie was pretty flawed. And I'm not going to make examples because it's like I didn't see it. Um, but I, I invite people to watch those movies with a critical eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just really, really beg Hollywood or Netflix or whatever for some like sex worker centered media. Because... Mm-hmm. The outsiders need to stop making this stuff because you make it based off of your fantasies, right. which are not necessarily related to the reality or your experience. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my thought. But anyone, if you've seen it, reach out to me about what you thought you liked or what you liked. They talk sex at protonmail.com. There's a great movie. I, I want to get her on here to interview. Uh, it's called Whores on Film. It's called Whores on Film. The website is The Celluloid Bordello. And this is a sex worker filmmaker who interviewed a ton of people and used footage from Hollywood films for the last century. How many movies that were blockbusters or award-winning films relate to or have a sex worker character in them? A ton of them do. But how ultimately many of them are problematic. Mm. That's my rant. Mm 
So what is your most radical worldview, do you think, Brandon? My most radical worldview? Oh, well, the decriminalization of um, any kind of, any, any most of, of most labor that is uh, consensual, right? And we can talk about what is consensual within a market economy, but um, let people live is the first one. I think, I think we do that through letting people survive um, using the means that they have. Um, and validating work as all work that has a role in society. I think I my most radical view of the world is I grew up watching a lot of Carl Sagan and a lot of um, uh, Sir David Attenborough and realizing that like mm. uh, we are not separate from nature. We are very delicate macroorganism in a tenuous balance with the rest of the world. And that's also why I have the view of sex that I have too, because uh, who are we to look at sex in the same way that we have looked at the land and the water as something to simply extract, control, exploit, uh, mm. shape in our image? Um, what, what hubris. And I feel like when we get closer to our bodies and when we learn how to, how to emerge and arrive in our bodies in new ways and with others in intimacy and in closeness and in eroticism, um, it's, to me, it's almost like arriving into nature. It's like the turning of soil. It's like the planting of something new. It's like the wind on the spring breeze. It is a way of relating with the natural world as it was, as it was so much longer before we imagined it was something else. Mm, I'm going to cry. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very much an ecosexual person. <clears throat> yep, there it is. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's a good... <laughs> The show's not over till L cries. Um, hmm. I like that. I like that quite a bit. So it's so nice to talk to people that really believe in the work they do. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Brandon. Lastly, do you have any sex tips for our audience? Get nasty. And by nasty, <laughs> I, and by nasty I mean, uh, dirty talk is a really amazing thing. I think dirty talk and role play are both really powerful. I want to echo what, what Brian said before around slowing things down and breathing well can radically change your experience of touch and certainly of sex. But on the more playful side of things, I really want to emphasize the playfulness of being able to get filthy. And even if you just start with narrating out loud the thing that you're doing, mm. of, uh, even if it's a, even if you just break it down into uh I am going to fuck you like blank. And then while you're doing it, say, I am fucking you like blank. Or do you feel me fucking you like blank? Mm -hmm. would, and then after that action, do you remember how it felt when I was fucking you like Ooh. blank? Even just that, right? Just bookending your actions with a present word to, uh, I think, really engages it, it, the verbal element of it. It's like punctuation. And you can get a lot filthier than that. But I think when we play with elements of that, it can help us stay present for one, and it can add these sort of like surges of punctuation in our body of like, oh, you just said the thing. Like you, it's one thing to do mm -hmm. it, but you just mm -hmm. named it. Mm -hmm. And whatever Ooh, forbidden like quality it had gets this exclamation point. Mm. I think of uh, something I was taught in a public speaking class back in college. It was sometimes for clarity, what you're doing is you're telling the audience what you're going to say. And then you say it and then you tell them what you just said. <laughs> yeah. So that makes me think of this. 
<laughs> I mean, I think that's another transferable skill for sure. Mm-hmm. And then trying on role play is the other one, because I think that um, there's so many, like you said, there's many people in that body of yours. And I think that's mm-hmm. true for most of us. We contain multitudes. And when we get to step into parts of ourselves that are marginalized or don't get a lot of rotation, there's power mm. there. There's newness there. There's so much more to explore about yourself and for, with a partner when you get to step into these roles and leave your everyday self behind. Mm. Mm. Rotation. Rotation is a good one. I had a, I had a man client tell me, um, so he's, he's bi. He was closeted bi for a long time. He's out now. He's living his best life. He has a very normie government job. Um, but he told me the other day, he's like, if I don't suck cock, I go a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, buddy. I know the feeling. (laughs) We do contain multitudes. And I like thinking about a a rotation of our characters coming out to play. Yeah, totally. Delightful. Okay, good. Is there any way that people can reach you besides ampersandintimacy.com or at surrogate therapy on Instagram? Um, Ampersandintimacy at gmail.com is my email. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, Otherwise, I'm relatively present on Instagram. So, feel free to message me through that. And there's a contact form on the website too for people who are looking for inquiries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a nice contact form. I, I'm glad my message got through. It works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people go there. Don't waste his time. Brandon, thank you so much for being a guest here on They Talk Sex. Let's stay in touch. And I can't wait to work with you and collaborate on things in the future. Same. Thank you so much, y'all. 